welcome to The Beauty Formula, where we go behind the scenes with skincare formulators and beauty innovators. Here, you will get an intimate look into their personal journey to success and their beauty formulations from inception to creation. Today, we will be talking with Alisar Zar from Revision Skincare. All right. Well, thank you for joining the Beauty Formula. Today, we are speaking with Alice Arzar. She is the Director of Research and Clinical Development for Revision Skincare. Hey, Alice R. Hi. How are you, Courtney? Good. How are you? Great. Thank you. I'm so excited to finally be interviewing you. We've been talking for a while on Instagram and different things, and I cannot wait to pick your brain today. Yeah, I'm very I'm excited as well. And Happy New Year. We're still in January. <laughs> Happy New Year to you too. I'm excited to see what's coming out from revisions this year. Definitely. So one of the main parts of your job is you're responsible for conducting clinical studies, new trials at revision skincare. Is that right? That is true. Yes. Okay. So what, tell us a little bit about what a day in the life looks like doing clinical research and kind of getting to that point. Yeah, definitely. So at Revision Skincare, well, within the department, we're doing both research and clinical development. So our team is responsible for new innovations and new product development, as well as currently looking at the products we have on the market and determining whether or not we want to upgrade some of the formulations or look at new clinical studies to support further efficacy. But in terms of new product development, we continuously research new ingredients and new technologies. We have a vast array of consultants globally that work with us as well. And so a typical day is not the same. Every day is very different and very unique. But truly what we do is work with our formulators um, to formulate our concepts and our innovations and then determine if that product is suitable and is acceptable for um, to the next step. So which is conducting different types of studies. And when we look at clinicals, we can talk about having clinicals based on in vitro, ex vivo, and in vivo. So we do a lot of these early on um, proof of concept studies, as well as these in vitro studies to understand mechanism of action. And once we understand the mechanism of action, then we can go into the in vivo where we spend a lot of time on designing the experiments, designing the study. We do work with physicians. Um, A lot of our protocols are actually designed with physicians. So within our key opinion leader group that we have, um, some of the subject matter experts in clinical trials. And one of our goals in our clinical philosophy is to have these utmost robust um, clinical studies that would achieve statistical significance. And so, I mean, I can go on for you know, yeah, days no. on this, but it's definitely... Um, you know, every day definitely changes, but once we run a study and then after we get a study, there's all these different phases, but we can, you know. Yeah, no. So starting at the beginning, like when you first start with a idea of a product, you are not the one that actually formulates it. Is that correct? That is correct. So Revision Skincare is owned under the same company as our sister company, Goodyear Cosmetics. Mm-hmm. And so Goodyear Cosmetics, we have formulators that we work with them to formulate the products. And so it's really a unique situation that we have that we're able to work with these formulators and it allows us to innovate faster. And so we have a team of formulators and chemists that are also looking at research in a different way. So we're all researching at the same time, new technologies. And 
So once the team at Revision assigns um, the different ingredients we want to put in the formula, we hand that over to our team over at Goodyear Cosmetics. And they are able to make the final touches, thinking about the aesthetic feel and the delivery system. So it's a really a nice partnership. And because we're owned by the same company, we have that like sister to sister bond together. Um, and then That's we go through different really phases cool. of testing. Yeah, it's really, it's really neat. And this, so it's a different angle on innovation than the way that we think about it. So is it usually... Um, you and your team that will come up with like a concept for an idea or is it the formulator that comes up with a concept for the idea? Um, no, it's, well, there's different ways of thinking about it. So concepts can come from marketing team, can come from Tatiana and I attending different conferences. They can come from the formulators as well um, because they also are attending conferences and symposiums to learn more about what the new hot ingredient is or what's the new technologies out there. They can come also from us listening to our accounts and our customers. Uh, Revision Skincare always has these symposiums yearly where we um, we invite all the practices that you know sell Revision and want to learn more about Revision. And we have these nice chats where they let us know, like, this is something that we see in the marketplace that would be really helpful for us with our patients. And so we, we listen and then we collectively meet together and discuss the pipeline and determine is this a feasible idea? How long will it take to deliver this product onto the market? What types of studies that are needed? And so there's definitely different inputs to get to that um, that product conception. But there's definitely yeah, definitely different inputs there. Yeah, that's like really, really cool. And I've always wondered like kind of like what the process of that is. And so y'all get a concept for a product, say we're talking about like the new C plus correcting complex. Okay. Yeah. So you have like this amazing thing that you, you hand the idea to the formulators, they formulate it. And then what happens next? Yeah. So um, what happens is that the team at Revision works with different scientists to, to look at different mechanisms of action. So C plus definitely is, has a lot of robust, studies. We have a plethora of in vitro studies to understand the mechanism of action. So that's actually my role is not only to handpick the ingredients and then determine how those ingredients work well together to then patent that synergy. So we're looking at, we are trying to patent all our technologies. So we have patent pending technologies. C plus has Melopath. So we look at that synergistic blend and we start playing around with that blend. And then we run these studies. So in vitro studies, cell culture studies, working with human-derived tissue, like keratinocytes and fibroblasts, to understand, is this synergy of ingredients able to help protect against free radical damage? So we have studies on high-energy visible light and pollution, for example. So we saw that within this synergy of ingredients, we see that this is helping with fighting free radicals. So the team works on this early understanding of mechanism of action. And once we understand that, we typically move to ex vivo studies. So ex vivo is taking skin um, from a plastic surgery. So imagine a patient having a facelift. So we take that skin from that facelift, the remain of that, and we test um, our product on that skin in an ex vivo setting to understand again, mechanism of action and what's happening within the skin. From there, then we go into in vivo, into the clinical study where we typically have over 30 to 40 patients in the study and looking at um, a robust study would include a placebo controlled, having it double blinded and randomized. So there's definitely a lot of steps to get to that clinical 
And then once we have the results, then dissecting those results, we have um, several statisticians and consultants that we work with to look at the data and to relook at the data and determine um, what have we achieved statistical significance and what are the claims that we can pull out from the clinical study. And then we work with marketing to really pull together that message and understand how are we going to message to the end consumer, whether that is either the the physician, the dermatologist, the plastic surgeon, nurse injectors, or just your patients in, in general and the consumers on, online. So definitely a lot of a lot goes behind a product launch and it's really yeah. exciting with a lot of moving parts. I know. It's always I mean when I hear it from you, it's like amazing how anything you can come to market because it seems so complex. What what's the time frame usually from like when you start once you have the formula and you start um, the first studies to when the product actually launches? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you, in general, every product that is supposed to be, that goes into the market has to have a certain set of studies that have to be performed. And those are safety testing. So they're called RIPT. So repeat and salt patch testing, Mm -hmm. as well as micro testing. So ensuring that the product itself isn't going to have any bugs growing in there, right? Bad bugs Mm -hmm. for your skin. So we do the safety testing and the micro testing. And furthermore, at Revision, we have our in-house stability chambers. So stability allows us, we look at accelerated temperature conditions to understand what does the product look like over the course of two to three years. And so what these stability chambers do is they're mimicking different temperatures and different length at that temperature mimics a two-year shelf life or a three-year shelf life. So we have to get through a stability program ensure the product is robust, there isn't separation or any negative side effects of the product. And once that has passed, then we go actually, we go to the next step, which is um, the clinicals and then launching the product. So there's a lot that goes into it, even more than just clinical studies, ensuring that the the user isn't going to open their lotion and it's going to be completely separated or discolored in any way. Uh Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I've actually seen some of those, um, like the stability testing chambers before um, with another company. And I thought I never knew that was part of it before. And I, yeah, it makes a lot of correct. sense. Do you all have to keep it in there for three years or is it just kind of accelerating is, that process? Yeah, there's a real-time stability chamber and then there's an accelerated stability. So the real-time does stay in for two to three years. Um, oh, and wow. then, but we, we launch with accelerated data. So um, typically your, your larger companies, um, do do this. This is something that mm-hmm. um, is very well known in the marketplace. It's actually pretty much requested by government and regulatory agents to actually prove out the shelf life, um, especially for OTCs. Not so much on cosmetics, but really, it's it's done on OTCs. But as we function as a company, we we look at the utmost, you know, the highest standards possible. So we treat cosmetics similar to OTCs, and so that uh-huh. we run our stability testing on them as well. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and obviously like even customers don't want it to be three years before you launch products. I mean, they would want it to be with it accelerated. Um, Right. Exactly. Yep. Or it would take a long time, but you had said something earlier about like with the C plus correcting serum, you know, that you were checking with the Melopath and how it um, protects against pollution and different external factors. How is that tested? So we tested, there's different validated systems that we could utilize. There is a um, tissue model from MatTech. If you Google MatTech, it's a company in Massachusetts, and they produce um, tissues that are derived from human skin cells, so keratinocytes and fibroblasts. 
So these are full thickness tissues, so epidermis and dermis. And so we utilize those models um, with laboratories across the country um, to look at if you expose this tissue to high energy visible light within the 400 to 450 nanometer range, the wavelength, for a certain amount of time in the presence or in the absence of the product, and then measure after that time point free radical production. There's different you know, biological assays to measure free radicals. So this is very much understanding cellular and molecular biology and something that I studied when I was in my postdoc. And so developing these types of validated methods really is exciting for me. And so I work with these companies across the country to develop these techniques and then we validate them together as well. So it's really exciting to do that. Wow, that's really great. I was always wondering, like, I guess I didn't think of it at that level, but it seems like, you know, something like that is hard to test you would have to put it under like a certain amount of pressure, like pollution or, you know, certain lights or whatever it is to see like the changes of what people experience every day, especially living in cities and things like that. Yes. So, well, luckily there's a lot of smart biologists that have been able (laughs) to mimic, you know, these conditions of pollution, city pollution and have validated test methods. And so, yeah, it's definitely, yeah. um, So sometimes um, like if you have a concept for a product and you think, you know, it's going to be a really good one and you get to the testing phase, does it sometimes not work out? I haven't seen that yet. It's only because we have a high confidence within our team that the formulation is going to do as it's tasked to do because we've done a lot of research in the background. Mm-hmm. So truly, Tatiana Karnoff, our chief scientific officer, and myself, we attend so many scientific symposiums and and to really understand the technologies. And as I had mentioned prior, we work with consultants that are you know, subject matter experts in different areas. They can also be um, experts in peptides and botanical extracts or the microbiome or sunscreens. And so really we work with them in developing concepts as well. So we definitely have the confidence that once we've created a product, it's going to do as it's designed to do. Right. And, and I mean, I'm sure you'll spend so much money doing that, that you wouldn't go forward unless you thought it was going to do what it was supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. And we, there's different types of products that we have. So um, for instance, like Cafe Dulce that launched last year, mm-hmm. um, that was for the gift purchase with purchase. That was a concept that came from our formulators and something that um, we wanted to look at a, a really nice a scrub that can be used on your face and it has this really beautiful smell and the experience is really wonderful. That type of concept was very much, it was a shorter time frame than C plus creatine complex or body firm. I mean, body firm took a few years to actually formulate and then create and then create all the clinicals for it and launch. So there's different complexities based on the clinical robustness that we want to put out in the marketplace. Right. Yeah. I'm sure. And the claims that it's making, um, but I mean, I remember when C plus and Body Firm came out. Did those products have more clinical research than any other products on the market? Um, they did actually. Well, definitely C plus Cretin Complex. That's actually when I had just joined the company. It'll be three years and um, next week with Revision uh-huh. Skincare. So it's really exciting. So when I joined, yeah. Tatiana had already um, been in the midst of the in vivo clinical study, but we were um, looking at some other studies to help bolster the claims and just to help really achieve that recognition of that this product really is a next generation in correcting and preventing damage, right? So 
we looked mm-hmm. at in vitro models and ex vivo models to develop. And so we did that. So definitely C plus has a lot of robust data around it. It also is our first product that has patent pending technology. So the Melopath technology and body firm has the iFirm patent pending technology. So I also work with um, Tati and I, we lead up this whole patent technology and understanding like what can we patent and really just, it's really fun. I mean, very research heavy. Um, Working with patent lawyers is definitely interesting and exciting. (laughs) I like to get in the mind of a lawyer. And then, yeah, it's really just a great opportunity. And this is not the first time that I have patented technologies. I did this when I was in grad school and my postdoctorate fellowships as well. And previously when I was at Johnson & Johnson. So it's something that I'm passionate about um, putting my name on a patent and getting that technology out there. So yeah, definitely. Um, well, since we are talking about a little bit about your background, um, I wanted to go back a little bit and see if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in this field. Definitely. Well, I can start. How far do you want to start? Like education? And, or what was I it? mean, as far back as you'll go, we are just okay. interested to hear it all. <laughs> sure. So um, my background is in chemical engineering. I I received a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Villanova University. And while I was in the program, I did several internships with medical or pharmaceutical companies. One of them was Biogen. So my passion was always research and understanding how to treat unmet medical needs. Um, and Biogen working on multiple sclerosis. And then when I was at within Villanova doing my own research project with Merck, a uh, project that was funded by Merck uh, Pharmaceuticals. So really always doing research. Um, I knew that I didn't just want to have a bachelor's degree. I wanted to just take it to the next level. So I went straight to a PhD program at Penn State University and received my doctorate degree in chemical engineering, specifically designing drug delivery systems to treat cancer. So that was a really gratifying and humbling experience. I was able to work across um, different departments, so chemical engineering, biochemistry, and material science. So um, I, at that point, wanted to be a professor. I was thinking that professor was the way to go. It would be very exciting. I really enjoyed teaching. Um, At the same time, I always was going between being a professor and being in the industry. And then I took a six-month sabbatical for my PhD and did a co-op with a drug delivery company called Alza. And Alza... um, Maybe some of you have heard of it, but Alza had developed the first delivery system to treat breast cancer, um, a cancer drug called doxorubicin. And this doxorubicin chemotherapeutic drug, you know, has a lot of side effects, but they were able to encapsulate it within liposomes. And so um, it was really part of my PhD looking at encapsulating ingredients and how to deliver them effectively to the area of interest. So once I got my PhD, I went and did two postdocs because if you want to be a professor, you truly need to have further education. Can you believe this? Which is, you know, and so I, um, I went to university of California, Santa Barbara and did a postdoctorate. Um, so two years of research focusing on developing biomimetic devices. So pretty much I developed nanoparticles that looked like red blood cells and acted like red blood cells that could be delivered as imaging agents for atherosclerosis. And so kind of got bored with engineering and decided that I want to be a molecular biologist. Kind of crazy, I would say. <laughs> and so I um, applied to Harvard Medical School Department of Ophthalmology. And there was a program 
um, that allowed me to learn more about the eye. So I like had explained, I'm all about trying to treat unmet medical needs. So I did cancer, I did atherosclerosis, and then um, being blind, pr- practically almost blind, wearing, wearing glasses since I was about four years old, I was always obsessed about the eye and um, learning about eye diseases. My father having glaucoma, I wanted to learn more about you know, how to treat glaucoma, how to treat um, diabetic retinopathy, really was so excited about that. So I had an opportunity to work within this postdoctoral program with two incredible scientists and was able to publish and patent um, my work with them as well. So that was really, really awesome. And once I finally achieved the fact that engineers can be scientists and they can do molecular or cellular biology, I decided that I need to see my products come to fruition. So this is where I go to the skin. So um, I had just, you know, to know when you think about the development of a fetus, there is um, the ectoderm. The origin comes from the skin, from the eyes, and from the brain. So if you understand the cellular and molecular biology of the eye, you can translate into the skin. So for me, it was an easier transition. I had really wanted to see products that could be helping. Like my goal was always to help treat like any consumer, any patient, so unmet medical need, whether it's in beauty or sunscreens or acne. So I joined Johnson & Johnson tech transfer team, and I was launching products for Johnson's Baby, Aveeno, Rock, Neutrogena, and Clean & Clear. And so scaling up products and globally launching them. And my focus was on sunscreens and acne, but I became so passionate about sunscreens because sunscreens they help prevent skin cancer. Mm-hmm. So with um, scaling up the sunscreens, I realized that I can formulate because I was formulating delivery systems for treating cancer. Um, it just really made sense. So I started working with formulators and asking them to tweak things because I realized that if you added this ingredient or took this ingredient out, and if you change the process, you actually created a more viable and more robust product. So I went into sunscreen formulation launched several products under the Neutrogena line, which is really cool. You can go to Walmart Walmart and see my products there. So oh, it's wow. really gratifying. Yeah. yeah, it's really gratifying to see that. And then then I missed research. I had taken a hiatus. It was four years actually from when I joined J&J and I wasn't doing any research, no writing papers, no patents. So I wanted to get back to research and I joined the innovation team and was working with really masterminds and sunscreens, um, the, the people that were behind um, Neutrogena's wet skin and helioplex technology. So really some cool, cool concepts and cool scientists. And, and then I just really wanted to continue growing my career. So it brought me to Texas. Uh, I worked with a smaller company and that company didn't really work out for me, but I had the opportunity to meet with Tatiana Kononov. And if anything, it's like love at first sight meeting with Tatiana. <laughs> yeah, She's yeah. such a amazing human. And speaking to her, I felt at peace and I felt like I could work with someone like her and she could, and I can grow, you know, within the company. And then I met with Maria Corral, our CEO, and I was sold. I was like, this is the company that I can see myself, you know, contributing to growing within and helping their research and development team. So I was truly their first hire for the research and clinical development team at Revision. And since then, so three years, I've been building the team and building building with Tatiana the science 
and just trying to get the science out there. So it's just been so exciting. And so that's how I got into skincare and that's how I ended up at Revision. And it's just been a true blessing and humbling experience. So yeah. I mean, that sounds incredibly fascinating. I mean, it's- I hope I didn't bore you. (laughs) No, not at all. I was just like, and you're young. I'm like, how did you do all that? (laughs) Yeah, well, my goal was to get my PhD before I turned 25. I got it when I just had turned 26, but that's okay. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yes, I mean, quite an overachiever for sure. I mean, when you were going through it, I was like thinking, okay, PhD must have been around 30. Like, how did you do that all so quickly? Um, I love research. I actually really, truly love research. I never slept truly. Um, I worked (laughs) on the weekends. um, Especially when I was at Harvard, I was excited to go into the lab. I was always so anxious. I'm like, I need this. I want this result to work out so I can like publish this. I was always so excited still am excited. Right. So yeah. Yeah. When you just put your mind to it and you truly like, luckily it just clicked for me. Everything just clicked and fell into place. I had honestly the most amazing mentors, my PhD advisor, Michael Pishko. I mean, he's really like amazing. I mean, such a great scientist and was such a great role model for me when I was getting my PhD and working with several other scientists in my team was really wonderful. So nothing, I didn't do anything by myself. The key to success is collaboration. A lot of scientists you'll see in grad school work alone in a silo, and they are unable to really understand that collaboration is what gets you to that publication. And then that gets you to a dissertation. To get out of grad school faster, you need to collaborate. And that's what I did. I worked across different departments and with different teams and was able to help them. They helped me and then I graduated. So that's really collaboration. Wow. So important. <laughs> yeah. Did, what are, are your parents in the same industry? Did they kind of give you that drive to graduate? Yeah, my um, father is, um, he has his PhD in organic chemistry and his father was a pediatrician. And I come from a family of doctors as well as engineers. So definitely they give him, they, you know, I'm first generation born and raised in America. I'm from Lebanon. So, you know, being a first generation immigrant, you know, family immigrated to this country, you really have to survive and you have to work hard. So it's not like mm-hmm. an option. Um, my twin sister, she's a um, pediatric nephrologist. So oh, I, wow. yeah, so she, I mean, we come from just definitely driven family that work really hard. And uh, my little sister works in the PR um, industry, but for medical device companies and pharmaceuticals. So really, we're all in this industry of helping and helping people. And it's just a really nice industry to be part of. I really love it. That's amazing. One of my best friends is first generation from Lebanon, too. I'll have to tell you about oh, it later. Oh, yay. But That's he's, exciting. Yeah, he's amazing. And he, they're, you know, I'm from Mississippi, so he's a chef in Mississippi, but um his family is a hoot for sure. <laughs> I'm sure they are. If they're like my family, <laughs> <It's> yeah. <amazing. laughs> yep. Well, so you've been in revision sound for three years. You said, correct? Yes. Three years. So they didn't have someone in this position before you. It was kind of like creating a position. Is that right? Right. So the position that I came into was called clinical science liaison. And I just recently, my title just recently changed to director of research and clinical development, but Tatiana being the chief scientific officer, she's the chief scientific officer for both companies, but she was literally doing everything. I mean, she's honestly amazing. So she was running all the research, all the clinicals. And um, 
it just kind of worked out. So she, they were looking for someone to come in and assist in the clinical side. And then I've been expanding my, my scope of work and really helping out with now formulation development and then patent development and researching and clinicals. And I work with quality on a lot of initiatives and changes to packages and improvement in our processes. So the, the role is really exciting. And Definitely my background helps support this understanding of how to work within this industry. So it's just really all exciting and really, it really I love I mean, it. I bet you're like a unicorn. And when she met you, she was probably like, this is exactly what I need in my life. I don't know. You're going to have to ask her. I just know that I'm always in awe of her. And when I talk to her, I'm just like, I really, we, she always says we're like-minded and I agree. Um, yeah. She's just such a nice human. I mean, I just, she's mm-hmm. so smart. She's so kind. And She's really supportive of my growth within the company. We have, you know, we have um, our value system at Revision. And I think that both Maria and Tatiana really walk, walk the walk and talk the talk. And they, they're just, they really do help the company and they elevate the company in that regard. So that's great. It sounds like a great place to work for sure. I went and visited one time and I was enamored by everything there. Awesome. Um, Yes. So are you the clinical, do you do the clinical research in your, um, the clinical director just for revision skincare or for a good year as well? No, just for revision skincare. So. Okay. So good year is like the parent company. The It's like the manufacturing side. Is that right? It's the manufacturing side, the manufacturing and, um, and the formulators are there and we already packaged. So we, we really own the entire chain. So from the formulation to the manufacturing, to the filling and the packaging, and then all the quality. So it's like the end to end. We, we own the entire supply chain of that. So it's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it is exciting. And I mean, just seeing how it actually works, it's like a well-oiled machine for sure. And how they make everything. I mean, it's just so incredibly fascinating seeing what all goes into just even putting the products together and the supply chain and all of the barrels of products. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I initially look at everything and I see problems and I like I was looking at it and I'm like, Oh my gosh, what if one of these barrels exploded? What if one of these things, <laughs> I mean, I'm just like, I'm glad I don't have to manage this project, but yeah. I mean, it just seems like it's flawless, but um, I wanted to go back a little bit to the, to the clinical trials and right. how that comes into play. So when you're looking at, let's say like the C plus again, since that one has okay. the most clinical research, um, like from the beginning, when you start the trials to the end, how much, I mean, can you tell us like in a ballpark frame, like how much does that usually cost a company? Yeah, that's definitely a very good question. And I guess it can range anywhere from like 50,000 to 250,000 in that area. So wow. it's definitely an area of investment and really understanding how to develop experiments and developing mm-hmm. the science behind the products is definitely difficult, but anywhere between that range. And it really just depends because um, for, for C plus and even for body firm, we did a um, double blind placebo controlled randomized study. So body firm, um, it was a split body study. So that was also a little bit complicated. So all these studies that we're trying to do, like I keep saying robust studies. So those that are going to also produce statistically significant results and working with our KOLs are, and helping design the protocols and ensuring. So we meet with, we always meet with a, a board of, um, of key opinion leaders and we 
we actually share with them our clinical design and they can rip it apart or they can provide feedback. It's really interesting to engage with physicians and they're them telling us what we should do. For example, with Body Firm, we shared our clinical study design with a room full of plastic surgeons and dermatologists. And it was actually Dr. Carmen Cavalli who was on, on the board at that time. And she's actually the first author of our publication in the Aesthetic Surgery Journal. She helped us create the clinical protocol. She also um, pushed us to use the Vectra 3D imager, which most plastic surgeons use to show before and after images and just to really help understand how the plastic surgery is going to change their body, right? So Mm -hmm. we work with these physicians to help us design the protocols. And so when we do that, it sometimes gets a bit expensive, but we definitely know that if this is what they think is the best, we want to be there within reason, obviously. But yeah, that's how we design experiments. So, and and then y'all hand over the studies basically to the physicians, um, that specialize in doing clinical research and then they actually conduct the study. Is that right? So there's different ways. There's different pathways of doing clinical. So we do follow FDA's good clinical practice guides, but what we do is we can do clinicals with physicians. So, um, investigators, like, so these are investigator initiated trials, or we can go to sites where they're set up within the FDA realm um, to create these studies. And so we've done several different ways. So within investigator or within different sites um, that can run the study for us. When we work with investigators, we're responsible to write the protocol, get it approved by the IRB, and then you know get everything together and pretty much work hand in hand with the investigators to ensure that every step of the way is being met with the utmost care, and within um, the highest quality measures. So there's different ways of running a clinical. But yeah, you can do investigator or you can go into a site, uh, a contract research organization that runs all the clinicals. And they have their PhDs and their MDs on site that are are also trained to be um, clinical graders. And they go through a program to ensure that they know how to clinically grade for different areas of the face. Like if you're looking at fine lines and wrinkles within crow's feet or fine lines and wrinkles in the forehead, um, based on different scales and models, they're trained to do that. So there's a lot of details that you have yeah. to know. Yeah. And so, no, for sure. I mean, this is like my favorite thing to hear about, honestly. So you were talking about you do um, in vitro and ex vitro. So mm-hmm. the in vitro is obviously on human, like a live skin, like a person, correct? No, in vitro means outside the skin. So in vitro, we... So we're taking human skin cells that have been growing in culture and we run studies on those skin cells. That can be a single cell model or you can then have a full tissue model. So there's different types of in vitro studies that you can run, but we can either do them on single cells at the keratinocytes or fibroblasts or we then work with um, validated systems like MatTech, MatTech epiderm mm-hmm. tissues that are full thickness tissue. So they contain the stratum corneum, the the stratum corneum, the dermal epidermal junction, and they also contain the dermis. And so we do studies in that as well. Um, and those studies help you understand mechanism of action of ingredients. And then you can help determine how you're going to really talk about that patent technology and speak to that. Okay. And then, so is it in vivo then that is the one that's done on live skin? Yeah. So in vivo is in human. So that's like, those are the, when we talk about um, a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled study, those are done on humans. And those require um, typically approval 
to really test on human subjects. So, Mm -hmm. and this is where you can control the clinical where you're giving a certain subset of patients, the placebo vehicle or the active and they're blinded and they are unaware that if they are receiving the placebo or they're receiving the active, but they run through the study, um, assuming that, you know, they have the active product. Right. (laughs) Um, I always am curious because I, you know, obviously I know compliance is key, obviously. And so like, do those, um, I don't know, what do you call them? Test subjects or (laughs) patient subjects? Yeah. Okay. Patient subjects. Do they like come into the facility every day and apply it or do they take it home and apply it every day? Yeah. That's such a great question. So they come at baseline depending on, so all our studies typically that we've published on are 12 week studies. So there's several different time points. You have baseline week four, week eight, week 12. So at baseline, they come in and they are there's an inclusion and exclusion of criteria based on the clinical study. Let's say that they, that one subject meets the inclusion criteria. She will then get clinically graded and she's given her, her products that she needs to use and an instruction sheet of every single day, morning and night. This is what you apply in, in this order. And she's also given a subject diary, a diary where she has to record every day that she has placed the products in the morning and in the evening. And any notes that she would like to, you know, write down that we can read for that if she has a recommendation or she sees that, you know, this is working or she's happy, she, they usually write this down. And then they come in at four weeks. At four weeks, they come back to the facility with their products. The products are always weighed to ensure that they're actually using the product, so we know mm-hmm. what the weight should be at the four week time point. Mm-hmm. And then they're clinically graded. And then they come back again at eight weeks. And then they come back at twelve weeks. So it's really structured. So compliance is key. Now, do patients sometimes forget to perhaps maybe a nighttime treatment? Sometimes we've seen that, but there's always that there's always that number of how many times do they have to miss where they're kicked out of the study? So that's built into the part of the protocol, mm-hmm. and they're still applied to the quality standards. So it, let's say that they literally ran through the study, and at four weeks they only placed the product on two times, then. I'm just, this is an extreme situation. I've never seen this, but just so you can understand if they've only applied it two times, then the director of the clinical study will contact myself or Tatiana. And we would say, no, this patient has to be kicked out of the study because she's not adhering to the protocol and the instructions. That makes sense. But we've never seen that. This is how it's placed in the protocol. We've never removed subjects from statistical analysis. There's been several other companies that have done that, actually, Mm -hmm. through their publications. They've removed subjects because um, they did not see a significant change on their end. And Mm -hmm. that's actually not efficacious nor recommended. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, that's what I was wondering because I'm like, I feel like it gets so complicated because obviously you're dealing with people and people have to be compliant it makes a lot of sense about weighing the product whenever they come in because... Keep it simple. You have to really keep it simple. Yeah. If you're looking at C+, um, C+, it was, um, they used a face wash. We gave them a face wash, C+, and then a sunscreen, mm-hmm. you know, and then that's the morning. And then during the entire trial, they are not allowed to use any other products because that takes away from the study as well. Mm-hmm. Like if they're using an additional product, that's going to skew the results. So it's really very tightly controlled. And this is how, if you look at all companies performing clinicals, this is typically what they do and how they run the clinical. Yeah. And I mean, that makes sense. Um, 
I mean, obviously, because you have to keep it simple. So how are the subjects chosen? Um, are they paid or I mean, what, what's their initiative to want to participate? That's an awesome question. So they, how are they chosen? So every study, we have a goal, a hypothesis, and we like, what's our, the goal, the, the objective of the study, what's our hypothesis and how we're going to, how are we going to get to this hypothesis or the result, right? We have an inclusion criteria. So um, we include women of certain age group. We include women that are uh, Fitzpatrick skin type one through six. We include women that have not smoked in five to 10 years. We include women that are not pregnant or breastfeeding and nor do they want to be pregnant or anything like that. So we, we include those women. So we're, we're, we never test on pregnant women at all or those mm-hmm. that are breastfeeding. We include women that, let's say for C plus, that had mild to moderate photo damage and hyperpigmentation. So based on certain scales. So there are validated scales that we use that um, to recruit patients. So there's a scale called the Griffith scale. And the Griffith scale is a 10-point scale that is grouped into um, mild, moderate, and severe. So let's say we are recruiting for a mild to moderate in hyperpigmentation if that clinical grader is grading that subject and she has mild to moderate hyperpigmentation, then she's part of the study. So there's there is called an inclusion and exclusion criteria, and every study has to have that. So that's how, that's how you control the study. In that so then the patient subject say they meet the criteria, and then mm-hmm. like what's in it for them to want to participate? Yeah, so there's different studies that are set up differently, but for typically what we've done is they do get paid. They get paid at baseline, mm-hmm. at week four, at week eight, at week 12. And the compensation increases as they continue on the study. Okay. Or there's um, studies where not only do they get paid, but they also get the product in the end as well. Oh, so they that's get a good. treatment. <laughs> yeah. A little bonus. Yeah. There was um, for the, um, we had the microneedling study with the DEJ that we published with Dr. Michael Gold, for example, they were able to get radiofrequency microneedling and they had the product. So it's just different incentives mm-hmm. for them to stay within the study. But I mean, no one's going to do it for free, right? No. You're going to have to pay them somehow. Of course. Yeah. Well, that's what I was wondering. I'm like, and especially yeah. if you're doing like punch biopsies and stuff. Oh yeah. And especially with the punch biopsies with that group, the randomized 10 subjects that we did for body firm, they actually do get paid a little bit more because of the biopsy. Mm. And yeah, that adds definitely some expenses to the study itself. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I actually, I've seen, um, like driving on the highway here, I've seen a like billboard before that's like, do you want to participate in an acne study? Call this number. And I, I mean, I almost called it just to see what it is about. And <laughs> yeah, there is definitely, I mean, that's, they do a lot of internet or Instagram or on the website, but it's interesting that how they are able to recruit and with an investigator, they just look in their database of patients that they treat and they figure out, um, you know, like for instance, we just recently published a, a paper on C plus correcting complex and IntelliJ true physical, um, for the treatment of melasma. I'm not sure if you oh, wow. heard no, about this, that. but no, it was recently published, um, late last year with Dr. Omar Ibrahim. He's a dermatologist out in Chicago. And so he actually came to myself and Tatiana. He said he had several patients that came to him that have melasma. And he was a believer of C+. And he was part of our program where he was speaking to uh, physicians about C+, cracking complex. And he saw how this product is really helping change um, the skin and pushing the skin to a healthier state. He felt that could we work on a possible study with him 
incorporating C plus and IntelliShade for melasma. And since he had the patient base, he recruited his patients. So sometimes it's not very difficult because if you have patients that really need that help and the investigator has a solution, um, mm-hmm. we're able to work with them on that. So that was a really fun study to work on. And yeah, definitely, yeah it was exciting. And to show um, the improvement of the skin and the pigmentation and the redness of the skin, we got some really beautiful results. And I'm sure Shanna will uh, share it with you one day. <laughs> yeah. De- so is that a published study now? It is a published study in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology. Oh, wow. Yes. And we just, um, yeah, it's just really a study that will resonate with everyone that has melasma or has struggled with melasma. And there's, um, it's a state of the skin where there's so many different um, factors that go into it. Like no one really knows mm-hmm. why it's being caused, but there's definitely right. different. It's a multifactorial. So we were able to treat it and really help with wow. changing the appearance of the skin. And so that's a pretty big deal, right? It's a big deal. Yeah. And we're really excited about it. And yeah, very excited about it. So can you all make that claim now that since you have a study or is the FDA still not let you make the claim? So that's, yeah, what a great question. Definitely. It's a, <laughs> it's a, <laughs> a point of struggle because um, melasma is a disease state and our products are cosmetic slash OTCs. IntelliShade True Physical is an OTC. So mm-hmm. we just have to tread lightly on how we write about it and speak about it. But you know, the appearance of the skin, the skin, um, we looked at hyperpigmentation, both modeled and discrete. We looked at the redness because um, melasma has components, a vascular component and a pigmentation component. So we can speak about that the appearance of the skin, um, even there's an evenness in skin tone, there's an improvement overall skin health. So we can speak about that, but we recruited patients that had melasma. So it's just how we speak about it to our providers and to you. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Alisar Zar. For part two, tune in next week. Follow us at the Beauty Formula Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Don't forget to subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform. And tune in next week for more insights on influential beauty innovation.